This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, if you'll bow your heads. Dear kind Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege. Lord, may we never, ever take it for granted. And we pray for your presence, the presence of your Holy Spirit, the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray for your protection, because we know the devil does not want this subject talked about. So we pray for your, your blood, that you will cover us here and put an angel, a hedge of angels all around us. And I pray in a special way that you will anoint Antoinette's tongue. And you'll give her words warm from glory, Lord. Thank you so very much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. slide where oh, this part's yeah. gone. Okay. Good afternoon. Okay. Acts 2618 says, I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why are we called to share what is true? So that we can be a vessel through which the captive is set free. We share what is true so that through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are dying can breathe new life. Our Savior raises the dead to life, not just for eternity, but here, now, in these moments. If we do not know what is true, or if despite knowing what is true, we waver, we gloss over it, or we fail to raise the standard, how are those who are dying going to be brought to new life? I once read a line from a book, and it said, would you have her hang on her cross forever? The magnitude of that question was striking to me. Would you have her hang on her cross forever? There is a fundamental truth that unites every single one of us. Someone is going to hang on your cross. And you only have two choices, you or your Redeemer. Either we will yield our lives in humility to the Lord, accepting his sacrifice, or we ourselves will hang on our own cross, and we will spend the rest of our time on this earth paying penance and scraping and grasping as we desperately try to make it right. Folks, we can't pay that debt. And neither can the post-abortive woman. 
Neither can the post-abortive man. Neither can those who have been affected by the tragedy of abortion. Our sins separate us just as profoundly as their sin separates them. And what we must not fail to understand is that none of us will ever find peace and forgiveness and freedom apart from the cross. So what is the significance of this? If we excuse sin anywhere, if we refuse to call it by its rightful name, if we trivialize it, then we, you and I, stand as a barrier to redemption for the very people who so desperately need it. Do you need to be forgiven for something that isn't sin? No, not at all. If we do not point a post-abortive woman to the light, if we don't point a post-abortive man to the light, where are they going to go? So the question is, will we embrace our calling as individuals and as a church to be instruments through which the captive is set free? You, some of you may have been here earlier today to listen to Diane's story, which is just phenomenal. She herself, who is post-abortive and has come through um, incredible trial and struggle um, to be whole and vibrant and free, literally set free by the redeeming hand of the Lord. The tragedy and devastation, as I mentioned earlier today, is not unique necessarily to Diane's story. There, for a woman who um, has had an abortion, there is a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and condemnation also associated with that decision. For instance, in talking, uh, uh, talking and ministering to women, being at ASI and GYC, um, uh, over the last couple of years, we've encountered many, many women who are post-abortive. And in sharing their stories, they've shared things like, um, you know, the enemy tells me that the reason that my children don't believe in the Lord is because I had an abortion. I want the weight of that condemnation just to sink into you for a minute. The reason your children don't believe in the Lord is because you had an abortion. What is she going to do? There is nothing that enables her to make that right. There's no way for her to turn back the clock. There's no way for her to set things in motion the way they should have been. So she's faced with a condemnation that she literally cannot overcome. And consider the implication of that condemnation for her. The implication isn't just that, you know what, the Lord is not for you. The implication is that the Lord is not for you and that the Lord is set against you. What is she going to do? Where is she going to turn? Well, she's not going to turn to the Lord. She's not going to turn to the one who she also believes condemns her. So what does she do? Well, as Diana shared, and I will reference Diane's story a lot, and um, it is available on GYC's website, and I highly, highly, highly encourage you to read it. The power of the Lord literally bounces off of the page. You will not regret reading this story. Do it. What is she going to do? As, as we've learned, research um, shows, Diane and her own experience, women who have shared with us, um, there's a lot of self-loathing, a lot of self-hatred involved. There's a lot of self-harm. So for instance, she might cut herself. 
She might develop an eating disorder. She might develop a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction. And she's constantly seeking to purge, to cleanse, to achieve some sort of catharsis that sets her free. She's just like us, quite frankly. She's chasing after idols and lovers, looking to be made whole. And the question that faces us is, who is going to tell her the truth? Who is going to tell her the life-giving, grace-filled truth that she has been redeemed? Well, that's you, that's me, that's us as individuals, we as a church. We have a calling. We literally have a calling on our lives to be the, ca- the conduit, the vessel through which the captive is set free. And if we will do this, if we will take up our calling, if we will embrace this calling from the Lord, we will watch as daughters, as sisters, as wives, as fathers, as husbands, as sons, families, communities are restored. So will we do it? My hope is that our answer as individuals sitting as a church, as a collective, that our answer would be a resounding yes. The first step, though, in reaching a post-abortive woman where she is, we have to understand she's living with a pain that is staggering. Consider the condemnation that I just shared with you. The pain of that is staggering. How do you survive under the weight of that apart from the Lord? She's not just mourning the loss of a clump of cells, like these skin cells I'm rubbing off of my finger. She's mourning the loss of a human being. And if our response to her despair, to her brokenness, to her shame, is either to dehumanize the unborn child or to trivialize the abortive act. We will not point her to the light. We will point her away from it. If we are going to reach her, we must honestly acknowledge and embrace what she lost, a child made in the image of the Lord. In Scripture, we're told that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our value was established at creation. That's what the Lord did when he created you. He established your value. He said, you are made in my image. I say you are valuable. And you are established. And your value was fortified at the cross forevermore. When your Redeemer died to set you free, he fortified, he literally entrenched your value with his own blood. Psalm 95.6 tells us, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. In Isaiah 45.18, we're told, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In Isaiah 64, 8, we're told, But now, O Lord, you are our father. You, we are the clay, and you our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Don't rush past these scriptures, particularly if you've heard them before. This is the word of the living God. And I know that something sometimes gets lost in translation because we see it 
um, on notepads or coffee mugs or t-shirts. This is the word of the living God, literally the power that created, the power that raises the dead to life. It is here. Our value was established by the Lord. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, we're told, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing excuse me, that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 9, 5b through 6, we're told, From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he created man. In Psalm 139, 13 through 16, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes, the Lord's eyes, saw your substance being yet unformed. And in his book, they all were written, the days fashioned for you, when as yet there were none of them. In Isaiah 41, have you ever thought of this verse in terms of value? Fear not, for I have, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the Lord of glory talking to you. In Isaiah 46, 3 through 4, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Would he say that to someone who has no value? He's not making this promise to a load of trees or a bunch of ferrets, okay? He's making it to you, one made in his image. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's interesting to note that in the Greek, when you're referring to the unborn, whether you're referring to born or unborn, in the Greek, there is no distinction drawn in value. That's really quite remarkable. Um, in Luke 1, 40, 41 through 44, when um, Mary goes to see Elizabeth, the verse says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe, brephos, that's the word for uh, babe or baby in the Greek, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your, your womb. But why is this granted to me that the Lord of my mother should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. That word, brephos, is the same even though Elizabeth is pregnant at that point, that baby's in utero. It's the same word used again in Luke 2.12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe, 
wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Well, when was he wrapped in swaddling clothes? After he was born. It seems like a little thing. It's enormous because the scripture is not drawing a distinction in value. We're referring to babies in utero and outside the womb in the same way. We're not merely human beings. We're human beings created in the image of the Lord. We are creatures who possess intrinsic value, eternal significance. It is the Lord that causes sperm and egg to unite. It is the Lord that causes a zygote to form. It is the Lord who causes an embryo to develop. In the Psalms, David spoke of the value of the unborn, of his value, when? When he was unformed and forming. David is not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking quite literally with the care with which Yahweh, God, crafted his being. When was he unformed? At his very beginning, at fertilization. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, the value of all life, born and unborn, is proclaimed. In the Old Testament, our Creator declared that man was created in His image. In the New Testament, our value was fortified forevermore at the cross. The message of the Bible and of our church is not simply that Jesus died, but that Jesus died for those He created. Being fearfully and wonderfully made doesn't apply to David alone. It applies to each and every human being. Now, someone might be tempted to make the argument that the word abortion does not actually appear in Scripture, and it does not appear in inspiration. And that is a true statement. Uh, Two points in response to that argument. The first is... a quotation from Ellen G. White. And it says, If you have given offense to your friend or neighbor, you are to acknowledge your wrong, and it is his duty freely to forgive you. Then you are to seek forgiveness of God, because the brother you have wounded is the property of God, and in injuring him, you have sinned against your creator and redeemer. Is she making a statement about our value? I believe she is. The second point, uh, a man named Scott Klusendorf at the Life Training Institute has asked this question, particularly in referencing this issue. Is it our position as individuals and as a church that the Bible condones everything it does not explicitly condemn? Couldn't we think of quite a few things, sins, injustices, that are not specifically mentioned in Scripture and yet that grieve the Father's heart. Mr. Klusendorf has used the example of lynchings based on race or gender. The Bible doesn't specifically mention either one of those, and yet couldn't all of us agree that they're wrong? Aren't we to use Scripture to interpret itself? Isn't that what we teach? It is evident that Scripture proclaims the value of the human being. However, in all of Scripture, there is not a verse that either explicitly or implicitly states that an individual may take the life of their unborn child. 
Antoinette told you earlier her story in the beginning of Mafkia. If you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go to Audioverse because they are recording these. But in the story, she talked about her mother who had planned to have an abortion and went to a place where she thought she was going to be able to get help getting an abortion, but found out, no, they didn't. But they wanted her to come back, and they wanted to encourage her and counsel her. Counsel her. And when she went back to this place, she saw this magazine, the Vintage Life magazine from 1965. Well, I love that. She has one at the booth, and you'll have to go by and see it. I saw one in eBay. It's on my want list. But um, so this incredible magazine, like she said, was the first of its kind, and it made a huge impact on um, the reality of the unborn. Now, the photographer is Leonard Nilsson, and his stuff is still popular today. He made that big of an impact. But now, as the technology from 65 has increased and improved, it's made a, um, a few of the advocates of abortion sweat. They've worried. This next slide is an incredible statement. In 1989, at the conference of the National Abortion Rights Action League, Harrison Hickman had this to say. Probably nothing has been as damaging to our cause as the advances in technology which have allowed pictures of the developing fetus. Because people now talk about that fetus in much different terms than they did 15 years ago, they talk about it as a human being, which is not something that I have an easy answer to how to cure. What a blessing we have the technology we have, huh? So before Antoinette continues, I want to share with you some remarkable pictures of human development in the womb. Now conception occurs when the sperm and the egg are combined. The nucleus of each presses closely together and that wall between them disintegrates with an enzyme. And when that wall breaks down, the 23 chromosomes from mom and the 23 chromosomes from dad combine. And at that moment, you've got of the first cell of another human body, another human being. It's called a zygote. Zygote means joining together, pressing together, which I thought had a lot of spiritual implications. This zygote contains 46 unique chromosomes with the entire genetic blueprint of a new individual. And it's alive, and he's growing. Once that joining together occurs, an explosion of activity happens. 208,000 nucleotides, the building blocks of our DNA, are produced every second. I love it. It's alive. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. That cell begins to divide. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It was Jeremiah. I love this because the early Christians, some of them, 
and today, even today, it's happened. They took on the Greco-Roman philosophy that a baby wasn't a person until it was fully formed. But as a Christian, we know better. Before we were even formed in the womb, God knew us, just like Antoinette was saying. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's David. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. It was Isaiah. Did he not who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? This is Job, and he was talking about his servants when he was talking about them. He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, Paul. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. It's Job. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Thus saith the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. It's Isaiah. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, it was many, many years before I would look at pictures like what you just saw. But when I saw these pictures at Antoinette's booth three years ago, it confirmed in my heart that, yes, indeed, it was a creation, a little human, a precious little human that had been paid for with a price that had been growing inside me. Go ahead. Thank you, Diane. I love pictures of development. I also love this quote. Science teaches that human life begins at conception. If it is also true that it is affirmed by religion, it does not, for that reason, cease to be a strictly scientific truth. There is a reality that we have to come to, uh, come to embrace, frankly. Um, the only reason to oppose abortion, the only reason, is because it takes the life of an innocent human being. Abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being or it doesn't. It can be one or it can be the other, but it cannot be both. 
As Greg Kokel with Stand to Reason has stated, before we can kill any living thing, we must first determine what it is. I've had the opportunity to gain incredible insight and understanding in dialoguing with friends of mine at an organization called Justice for All. And they brought up several key points in defense of the unborn that I'd like to share with you. The first is what I call the 10-second human defense for the humanity of the unborn. Steve Wagner at Justice Justice for All um, created this 10-second defense that I think you'll find helpful. This is my version of it. If the unborn is alive, it must, excuse me, if the unborn is growing, it must be alive. If it has human parents, it must be human. And living humans or human beings like you and me are valuable, aren't they? The second point is the definition for life. Scientists generally agree um, that things that are alive exhibit three characteristics. Irritability, reaction to stimuli, metabolism, converting food to energy, and cellular reproduction, growth. The unborn exhibits all three characteristics. The third is that the unborn is a unique human being. From the moment of conception, from the moment of your conception, a unique, genetically distinct human being came into existence. Every bit of genetic information you now possess, you possessed then. Think of that. Every bit of genetic information you possess then, you possess now. Even as you sit here in this room, you were simply at a different stage of development in the very beginning. You're simply at a different stage of development now. But nothing has been added to you to make you any more human. Richard Stith um, has, as he explains this, this idea, he's come up with an example of a Polaroid picture. Do you guys remember Polaroid pictures? They've become new again, right? Like popular again? Um, if you think of a Polaroid picture when it's taken, you consider the way it develops. Once the picture is shot, that picture exists absolutely, totally and completely. Nothing is added to the picture to make it any more of a picture, right? It simply needs time to develop so that our eyes can see it properly. So too with us and the unborn. As Stith points out, we develop, we developed actually from inside ourselves. We were not constructed. You think of the way that a car is constructed when it comes down an assembly line. You add a body, you add tires, you add nuts and bolts and screws, and eventually you have a car, right? During gestation, parts are not added to you to make you more human. You develop, much as that picture develops, from within. At fertilization, you are, in terms of genetic information, now what you were then. You were simply at a different, um, different level of development. So we know that the unborn is a human being. But someone might next object, well, I don't think the unborn is really a person. Philosopher Stephen Schwartz has an incredible response to this, And you can remember it by remembering the acronym SLED. 
size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. There are really only four differences between us and the unborn. Only four. They are size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. If we run through them, you consider the unborn, is the unborn smaller than we are? Yes, that's undeniable. The unborn is smaller than you and me. Can we think of, of two other born people, though, one who's smaller than the other? Is a toddler smaller than a 12-year-old? I think we'd all agree yes. Does that mean the toddler is less valuable simply because the toddler is smaller? What about level of development? It's true, undeniable, the unborn is less developed than you and me. Um, Scott Klusendorf, who I mentioned earlier with the Life Training Institute, likes to use this example, and it may surprise some of you, but um, you don't actually reach your intellectual peak until you reach your mid-40s. But does that mean that everyone who is 40 and below is less valuable than everyone who's 40 and above? Not at all. I love telling it that to this age demographic. That's, I, haven't, I enjoy it. Um, what about environment? It's true that the unborn is in the womb. It's not out here in the world. But we change environment frequently, don't we? Us, us of a, those of us who are born, going from church to school to work, we're constantly changing environment. Does that mean we are constantly changing value? Is it true that in, environment actually determines who is valuable? What about degree of dependency? It's true that the unborn is very dependent. Is there anyone else who's very dependent? What about a newborn? A newborn's extremely dependent on its mother. Does that mean the newborn is less valuable than its five-year-old sister? No. So are any of these four differences really relevant in determining value? No. At fertilization, we were what we are now in terms of genetic information. We're simply at a different size, a different level of development, in a different environment, and at a different degree of dependency. So again, we come back to this critical point. Abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being, or it doesn't. It can be one, it can be the other, but it cannot be both. We must be willing to be honest regarding the logical outworkings of our position on this. If in response to this crisis, to the woman in crisis, if our response is to call the unborn a potential life, or say that the unborn isn't really alive, or simply not as valuable as you and me, if our response is to dehumanize the unborn, we will then act as a barrier to a woman and her redemption. What we wanted to, um, first of all, I want to say, anyone who is interested in um, asking a question, please do write that down, and um, uh, we would be happy to answer it, either in email or uh, in an open format. Um, but just wanted you to know. Any question is, is good. Um, we wanted to uh, take you guys through 
our guidelines. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, our guidelines themselves, uh, the guidelines that we have as a church that were established back in 1992. Um, I'd really li- I'd like to read through those guidelines with you and then discuss several of them in greater detail. Uh, but first, I really would like to make this point again. In speaking about this issue and openly discussing um, things like our guidelines, we are seeking to set the captive free. We're seeking to cast down ideas that have exalted themselves above the knowledge of God. Remember that we seek out what is true so that we can be a vessel through which the captive is set free. If you remember Acts 26.18, I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God, excuse me, from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, we are exhorted to reconcile, reconcile people to the truth, reconcile them to the cross. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is our desire in approaching this issue, in speaking about it, and as we go through our guidelines. I'm actually going to go ahead and break early. if you guys don't mind. And then we can, because I don't really want to stop in the middle, and we can run all the way through it um, when we start the next session. Okay? Thank you, guys. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.